0: If you need a Bible just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible or if you're towards the front there's some up here that you can grab one of those turn to the third book of the New Testament Luke chapter 21 so we continue our journey this teaching of Jesus called the Olivet Discourse Jesus telling his disciples about the signs of the end the destruction of Jerusalem the signs of his coming we have gone as far as verse 25, where we do read Jesus saying, And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth the stress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up, And lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Now, as we come back to the signs concerning the end of the age, keep in mind that Jesus has given this teaching to his disciples in light of what he told them when they were at the temple was at the end of the day. Jesus' last full day of ministry, and he withdraws from the people. As they're walking across the temple proper, the disciples are pointing out the magnificent temple and these huge stones and beautiful stones and Jesus said that the day is going to come when not one stone is going to be left upon another he would leave the temple proper he would cross the Kidron Valley pass the Garden of Gethsemane and he would go to the Mount of Olives and there on the Mount of Olives is the disciples they came to Jesus and said when is this going to happen Uh, when is the destruction of the temple going to happen and what are the signs of the end Now, keep in mind, they thought when the temple was going to be destroyed, it has to be the end of the world. So here they are. They are asking these questions. What's the sign of your coming? And Jesus is talking to them about the signs of the end, as we saw in verses 8 through 11. There's going to be deception. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars, famines and pestilence and earthquakes and persecution. And Matthew and Mark, in their recording of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13, we see that they tell us that they're liking the birth pangs. In other words, like a woman who goes into labor, that the contractions, the labor pains happen more frequently and more with intensity as she gets closer to delivering that child. And these signs There have always been wars, there's always been famines and pestilence, but it's going to happen like labor pains. As we get closer to the return of the Lord, it's going to happen with more frequency and intensity. And it is pointing to that the kingdom of God is going to be birthed before long. So Jesus telling, as we get back to our text, back to the signs of the end of the age. Because you see, Dr. Luke does something unique in recording this discourse and and teaching of Jesus. We saw in verses 12 through 24, as we covered it last time, that the beloved physician, as Paul calls him, would give us that record of Jesus telling of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 A.D., we talked about that in detail, what happened is Titus and the Roman army came and destroyed the temple, leveled it uh, to where not one stone was left upon another. They leveled Jerusalem, burnt the city. And Matthew and Mark, in their recording of the discourse, uh, that is the Olivet Discourse, they don't record that about the destruction of Jerusalem. But what those gospel writers do is they jump forward after the description of the initial signs that Luke gives, and they give those signs as well, then they talk about the abomination of desolation. Jesus said, when you see that, spoken of Daniel the prophet, then you need to leave. And you see, we need to keep in mind that the desolation of Jerusalem in Luke and the abomination of desolation spoken of through Matthew and Mark, those are two distinct events. The desolation of Jerusalem, again, took place already in 70 AD. The abomination of desolation has not taken place yet. That will take place as Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. You might want to write it down in your notes and read it. That that is going to take place in the middle of Daniel's 70th week, which is the tribulation period. So Luke, you know, he, he talks about... The desolation of Jerusalem, Titus Vespasian, comes and destroys the temple. He did not desecrate the temple. And Matthew and Mark talk about the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist will go into the rebuilt temple of God in Jerusalem. He will proclaim himself as God, set up an image of himself, and desecrate the temple. That is yet future. And we see that Luke now, as he comes back... He talks about the signs of the end of the age, and that was one of the questions they asked Jesus. Hey, if this temple's gonna be destroyed, what's the sign of the end of the age? verses 8 through 11, these signs are likened to sorrows, the birth pangs. And now Luke continues telling us of the signs. In verse 11, take note there that he says there's going to be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. And then as we pick it up in verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars as he continues telling us of these signs. What is interesting that we find ourselves in this text because there's been some attention given. Perhaps you've seen it. I've gotten phone calls and emails on it. And questions asked about those who are claiming that this Saturday, September the 23rd, is going to be a fulfillment of Revelation chapter 12. And matter of fact, if I can find it here, there is an article that came out in Fox News this morning that I just printed out. That biblical prophecy claims the world will end on September the 23rd, Christian numerologists claim. And what they're claiming is that there's going to be this great sign in heaven, according to Revelation chapter 12. I'm just going to read it to you briefly as we look at it. And in Revelation chapter 12, that it says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. So what there are those who are coming along and getting a lot of attention and they're saying that the constellations of the stars are going to line up, the sun and the moon. That's never happened before. And this is the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 12. And there are some that are claiming the end of the world is going to come. There are some that are claiming that it's going to bring great upheaval, tsunamis and earthquakes. And this is why you've seen the hurricanes that come through the United States and all of this. I want to tell you this you can be assured that Revelation chapter 12 is not going to be fulfilled this Saturday. And the reason that we can say that with certainty is because you've got to keep in mind that Revelation chapter 12 is in the middle of the tribulation period. We are not in the tribulation period. And as you read Revelation chapter 12 very carefully, and it talks about the woman giving birth to the child and the dragon going after the woman. Listen, in that symbolism, let scripture interpret scripture. And you can go back to Genesis chapter 37, where Joseph had a dream of greatness to where he had a dream of the sun and the moon and the 11 stars as his 11 brothers who are the patriarchs to the 12 tribes of Israel, including himself. And so it's speaking of Israel. It's speaking of that time when the Antichrist proclaims himself as God. He's going to persecute very heavily anyone who does not worship him and does not align themselves with him. Take the mark of the beast. And we know that the Jews are going to reject him and he's going to go after them. And they, a remnant of the Jews, are going to go and hide what it is uh, believed to be in the rock city of Petra in Jordan. And that's where the dragon goes after the child, goes after the woman. And that's what it's speaking about. We are not in the tribulation period. And here's the thing to keep in mind. There are those who come along. There's been books written about the blood moons. And, and, you know, this is what's going to happen. And usually they write about how it's going to bring judgment to America. And oftentimes what they will do is quote from Joel chapter 2 to bring out their point. Joel chapter 2, speaking of the day of the Lord, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars diminish their darkness, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Here's what you need to keep in mind. That term, the day of the Lord, particularly that is spoken of in the Old Testament, speaks of God pouring out his wrath on a Christ rejected world and on the world that has rebelled against him. And then it's followed by blessings. So the day of the Lord is a period of time that begins with the tribulation period, extends through the end of that seven year tribulation period, and the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then the millennium reign, That Jesus, when he comes back, he will establish his kingdom and you and I are going to come back with him and rule with him for a thousand years. That is the day of the Lord. So to pull out Joel chapter two and try to apply it, uh, what happened to the blood moons, you know, a few years ago is taking it out of context. So we want to be wise in what the scripture says. And we can look at this and we know that there are signs. There's always been those signs that have happened in the heavens, you know, Fearful signs. For example, that in 1908, some of you have perhaps heard of the Siberian explosion, that on June 30th, there was a large meteorite that hit that, that remote area of Siberia. And it's, it's interesting, as the Planetary Science Institute wrote on it, they said that seismic vibrations were recorded by sensitive instruments. These were instruments that are over 100 years old at this time that measured the disturbance 600 miles away, the vibrations that came from it. At 300 miles away from the explosion, observers reported deafening bangs and a fiery cloud on the horizon. 110 miles from the explosion, the object was seen in the cloudless daytime sky as a brilliant sunlight fireball. Thunderous noises were heard. At a distance of 60 miles from the explosion, people were thrown to the ground or even knocked unconscious. That's 60 miles away from the explosion. And probably the closest observers were some reindeer herders asleep in their tents about 20 miles from the site. They were blown into the air, knocked unconscious. And one man was blown into a tree and later died. There was Many hundreds, thousands of acres of trees that were burned. Can you imagine something like that falling in the eastern coast of the United States or the front range of Colorado? We know that Revelation chapter six, we see the culmination of what Jesus is talking about. And I'm going to read it to you. When the sixth seal is opened up, John writes this, starting in verse 12. "That I look and when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? That in the sixth seal here in in the tribulation, in the day of the Lord, that what Jesus is speaking about, there's going to be fearful signs in heaven that we're going to see that when the sixth seal opens up, there's going to be great geologic upheaval and cosmic disturbances, and the sky's going to roll up like a scroll, that we're going to see the one who sits on the throne like a lamb, and they're going to cry out, hide us from him. Rather than turning to him, it shows the hardness of men's heart. Isaiah, in a few weeks, as we will go through Isaiah, he speaks at that time. I'm going to read it to you from Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limped. Every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid, even as Luke records Jesus saying would happen. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. There will be pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames, verse 8 declares. We continue reading there in Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. And I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Some will say, well, this is a proclamation against Babylon, a proclamation, you know, against a nation. Here the Lord says, I will punish the world for its evil. So at that time, the day of the Lord, it begins with the Antichrist coming on the scene. And then we see that God's going to pour out his wrath on a Christ rejected world, a world that has turned evil. Even as we see that Jesus says that the days that will come will be very dark. He, he Even Matthew records that a man's heart will be more evil than ever before. So here, as we see, that these signs, Joel Haggai talks about cosmic disturbances, geologic upheaval in the day of the Lord, causing the hearts of men to fear. When it comes to nation, Jesus goes on and says in verse 25, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity. It speaks of nations facing circumstances and situations to where they don't know what to do. Literally, it means they are in a tight spot. Really with nowhere to go, it can be interpreted as to being at wit's end or at a loss. There's no way out. I mean, we think about our own nation. How do you get out of $20 trillion of debt? How do you get out of that? And the violence that we see and the immorality and the problems that face us and and the world's problems that are out there, terrorism that is growing. Just last week. Earlier in the week, we, we know that we observed the anniversary of 9-11. And when that happened, that we began to learn about terrorism to a greater degree, didn't we? We begin to hear about Al-Qaeda and Afghanistan and President Bush declared war on terrorism. And our fine young men and women, our brave military that has been overseas in Afghanistan and in Iraq and Syria and other places, they have kept us safe. We are very grateful for that. But we are seeing that terrorist groups are growing not only do you have Al-Qaeda, but you have ISIS, as we hear about in the news. The Taliban, the Hezbollah, the Hamas, the Al-Shabaab, and others. You have nations that sponsor terror groups. And we even had a terrorist attack that happened in London yesterday. There's five terrorist attacks in that city alone since, I believe, May. And we have those who... You know, terrorist groups and those nations that sponsor those groups that are developing nuclear weapons. Can you imagine one of those groups getting a hold of a small nuclear device or a chemical weapon? It's a huge concern. Those who are in high levels of intelligence don't sleep well when those things come up and the concern that's there. What do you do with a dictator in North Korea that threatens the United States and firing missiles over Japan and threatening Guam and all of this that has nuclear weapons and claims to have a hydrogen bomb. What about Syria and Iran and their pursuit of nuclear weapons? Again, sponsoring terrorism. You have Russia. There have always been problems with nations, but these are going to increase in intensity and in frequency. It will culminate with a world leader that will come on the scene And the world's going to receive him. He's going to be a political leader, a religious leader, a military leader, and an economic leader, all in one package. And the world will not only receive him, they're going to claim that he's a great orator, is what the Bible tells us in numerous places, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But he's going to proclaim himself as God to be worshipped as God. And the world's going to turn and begin to worship him. He's called the man of sin, the son of perdition, He's called the Antichrist. And I'll tell you this, the world is ripe for that kind of leader right now. And he's going to bring great deception. And he's going to bring great destruction upon this world before it is all over. Luke goes on to explain the signs in verse 25, that the sea and the waves roaring. Now, some have suggested that it may be speaking of nations, since in the scripture, the sea Sometimes it's symbolic of nations, particularly Gentile nations. Or it could be, speaking of hurricanes, tsunamis, and typhoons. Things like that. We know that in the last month, we've seen two major hurricanes hit the United States. Hurricane Harvey in, in Texas. And that tropical storm dumped more rain... You know, as it hit land in any other tropical storm that's ever recorded, over 50 inches of rain in Houston. And we've seen the flooding, the widespread flooding and destruction that happened as it came on shore as a Category 4. And then last week at this time, Irma, it came through Florida, hit the Florida Keys as a Category 4. The destruction, billions of dollars worth of damage. Many still don't have, you know, electricity in Florida and in Georgia. You know, that Hurricane Irma was the strongest hurricane ever recorded in the Atlantic Ocean. It was a Category 5 hurricane, three days longer than any other hurricane that hit a Category 5. It was measured at the lowest barometric pressure ever for a storm in the Atlantic Ocean. Lower the pressure, stronger the storm. It had winds of 185 miles an hour for 37 hours. That had never happened before. And it caused some of the largest evacuations in the United States history there's going to be rebuilding and restoring that's going to take place for months and years because of the destruction of those hurricanes so Jesus talking about there's going to be you know the roaring of the seas the 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 waves that are roaring and then in verse 26 men's heart failing them from fear it's the only time that that phrase is used in the new testament it literally means to be so scared that you stop breathing So terrifying and terrible that these signs that will culminate right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, that men will see it and they will go into cardiac arrest, I imagine. Revelation chapter 6, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And then Jesus says, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Kind of interesting as Luke continues to write here. That in verse 26, the powers of heaven will be shaken. He's already talked about that there's going to be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. Verse 11, fearful sights and great signs from heaven. So we see here that as scholars read this, some have suggested, we don't know for sure, that this part of what is being said for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That there are those that suggests that perhaps Jesus is giving a hint that principalities and powers are going to show great signs in heaven as we get closer to the return of the Lord. We don't know for sure. But Jesus goes on in verse 27. And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. They will see the Son of Man. That is a title that Jesus takes to himself from Daniel chapter 7. That the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man as he's reigning over the nations. Eighty times it is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. The first time we see it used in Luke, they recall the one came to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes, birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Isn't that incredible? The creator of the whole universe and the creator of this world Had nowhere to lay his head. Now, the last time that we see that term that it is used, it's in Revelation chapter 14, that the Son of Man with a sickle in his hand, to, you know, for the great harvest of Armageddon. And Jesus telling his disciples that when you see the Son of Man coming in a cloud in power and great glory, is Jesus talking about when he says a cloud, a literal cloud, a physical clouds? We talking cumulus, nimbus clouds? I think it could be that. Or is he talking about a cloud of witnesses? Jude tells us that, behold, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. Revelation chapter 19 describes Jesus' second return to this earth. And in verse 14, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, follow him on a white horse. That's you and me. When we come back with him. Now keep this in mind. Then when we talk about the return of the Lord, There's two distinct events. There is the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 and 17. That we're going to meet the Lord in the air. That's the rapture of the church. When he comes for the church. The second coming at the end of the tribulation period. Jesus comes back literally and physically. Touches down on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah's prophecies tell us. That the mount will split in half. But that's when he comes with his church. The rapture of the church, we meet him in the air. He comes for his church. The second coming, we come with him. He's coming with this church to rule and reign with him. So here, this cloud, is it the physical cloud? Is it the cloud of witnesses? Or is it the cloud of glory, this kind of glory spoken in the Old Testament? I think all three are true. It's certainly they are. And so we see that Jesus very clearly saying that when I come, it's going to be very evident. Matter of fact, Matthew's gospel tells us that his coming is going to be like lightning that flashes from the east to the west. Every eye will see him. And I want you to keep that in mind because there are those who will come along and say, well, his coming, he came secretly or spiritually. And it comes from those who set dates They have false prophecies that teach heresy and and they'll say, well, you know, we set this day for the coming of the Lord, but he actually did come secretly. And as we read scripture, listen, this is a no brainer here. All right. He says he's going to come with great power and glory that every eye is going to see him It's like lightning flashing from the east and the west. So somebody comes along and says, well, Jesus already came back. You can dismiss it because that's not what the Bible says. The first time that he came, he came as the humble, suffering Messiah, beaten beyond recognition. And the Father allowed it because he loves you. And Jesus gave his life for you, that you might be forgiven, that you might have the hope of heaven, that there's an eternal kingdom that you can belong to, we have such a wonderful future, right relationship with the Father. That's why he came the first time. And you may be here and you might think, you know, life is good. It's all right. And you, if you don't have Jesus Christ in your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, things are not all right. Because things don't just continue as they are. As Peter says, those unbelievers and mockers of the coming of the Lord will say, where's the coming of the Father since the forefathers' times, you know? uh, Things continue as they are. No, this is all leading to something. And it's leading to the return of Jesus Christ where he will come and establish his kingdom and we get to be a part of that. This world is not where it's at. And this world's going to come to a disastrous end. And he came... That you and I might have the blessed hope. The blessed hope of his return and salvation. And he gives us some words of hope as we come to verse 28. This is also exclusive to Luke. There's no parallel in, in Matthew or Mark. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Not only is there words of comfort and hope given here, but there is a contrast. There's a contrast that I point out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when Paul's talking about the rapture of the church. He says that we who are alive, we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That word caught up. The Greek word harpazo is the Latin word rapturus, where we get our English word rapture. And I mentioned that you can write down in your notes, because there are those who will come along and say, "Well, the rapture is not in the Bible; it's not mentioned in the Bible, so we don't believe in the rapture." Well, in the Latin Bible, it is mentioned, and so it is a very clear doctrine that Paul taught that we here alive, there's going to be a generation of Christians. That he goes on and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Not the blink of an eye. The twinkling of an eye. That is caused by light reflecting off your eyes. That we all shall be changed. And we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Where he comes for his church. And then in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. When Paul's writing about the day of the Lord. Begins with the tribulation period. When they say. Interesting, the pronoun changes. Come the rapture of the church, we who are alive are going to be caught up. But when they say during the the day of the Lord, it's going to come as a thief in the night, it's going to come upon them unexpectedly. When they say peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them because we're not going to be here. The church is going to be gone. Here we see that as Jesus talks about these signs, he says, men's heart are failing them, verse 26. They will see the Son of Man, verse 27. But in verse 28, Jesus says, when these things begin to happen, you look up. When they begin to happen, because your redemption draws near. And what we're going to do next week is Jesus is going to give a warning to us. As he wraps up this teaching... A very important warning that comes with an exhortation. He says, I don't want you to be weighed down. Take heed to yourself spiritually. Don't be weighed down with worldliness, lest that day come upon you unexpectedly. Because those who dwell on the earth, it's going to become a snare to them as it comes. But you are to pray and watch always that you may be worthy to stand before the Son of Man. You know, and that's the thing. We have the blessed hope that is given to us. And today, as we go through these signs and we think, man, heavy things are coming down. We don't have to be afraid. That's why Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, comfort one another with these words. Because we do have the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, as he wrote to Titus, the appearing of our Lord. He's going to come for us. So we see the doctrine of imminent return that we're going to discuss next time that I think is very, very important for us to understand. But we'll get to that. In verse 29, though, he continues, and he spoke to them a parable. said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. And heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So Jesus tells a parable, tells a parable of the fig tree. Behold the fig tree, he says. Now, what does the fig tree represent? Many will say that it represents the nation of Israel, and it can be. As we've discussed in the Old Testament, sometimes Israel is pictured as a vineyard. Sometimes it's pictured as an olive tree, sometimes as figs, like in Jeremiah, not necessarily a fig tree. And when you get to Matthew chapter 21, we see that Jesus would come and he would curse the fig tree. It had a lot of leaves, but it didn't have any figs on it. And as we read that, the fig tree being symbolic of at least the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders, that they had a lot of religiousness, a lot of leaves, but there was no real fruit unto God. So I think that certainly as we have the rebirth of Israel in our lifetime, you can put it there. But Jesus said not only the budding of the fig tree, but of all the trees know that summer is near. And we know that to be true, don't we? We know that in the springtime when the trees bud, that summer is coming. We prepare for that, don't we? We get our fertilizer out. We start to plant flowers. We you know, get our RVs and camping equipment ready to go. We plan vacations. We do that. It's like today when you're walking in the stores and you see Christmas decorations already up. You know that Halloween's not far away. (laughs) So he says, when you see the budding of the fig tree. Israel coming about in all the nations, all the trees. I think it speaks of those nations as you look at the prophetic scenario as a whole, there are other nations that are going to play a role. You have Ezekiel 38 in the latter days, that confederation of nations that are going to come against Israel, that you see that Russia is mentioned, and Iran, and some of the other Islamic nations that surround Israel, that we see even today that Russia and Iran, their troops are only miles away from the border of Israel. It may be the next major war that takes place in the Middle East. You're seeing... The, the trees budding, the revived Roman Empire, the kings of the East, nations that are mentioned. What concerns me is when you look at the United States, the United States is not really mentioned in end time prophecy. Do you know that? There may be a few vague references, but nothing really is said. So what does it mean for us? I don't know. It concerns me. And we need to be praying for our nation. We need to be praying that there's a revival, you know, a great awakening that takes place. Because our nation, as you know, that we're declining spiritually, morally. We are pushing God out of our nation. And that's a dangerous place to be. And what I pray is that this scenario would play out. That when the rapture of the church happens, there's a great awakening that happens in the day in which we're living in. We don't know the day or the hour of the rapture of the church. We don't know when that's going to take place. But we can see the signs. We can see the storm clouds gathering. We can see the budding of, of Israel, the fig tree. We're seeing the budding of the other nations that are coming together. The puzzles being put together as you read the newspaper and you read your Bible. What's going to happen in the last days? I pray for revival. And I pray when the rapture happens that so many people are taken out of this nation that it really has a a serious effect on us being a superpower any longer. But I hope that we don't continue down the road to where we're rejecting the Lord. Because it is a dangerous road to be on. We need to be praying in the light. Amen. Praying for our leaders. Praying for our community. Praying for our nation. But here Jesus is saying that when you see that budding, summer is near. And he goes on and he says in verse 32, that brings a lot of discussion. Surely I say to you that this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Now, this is a verse that date setters love to use. That this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. The budding of the fig tree. So 1948, Israel becomes a nation, a generation It's 40 years according to the book of Numbers. So 1948 to 1988. Weisenhunt, some of you might remember, wrote a book, very popular, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Must Come Back in 1988. He took the generation, meaning that it's 40 years, 1948, the budding of the fig tree. The Lord's going to come back in 1988. He took a large group to Jerusalem to be there during the Feast of Trumpets. And, of course, the Lord didn't come back. What is interesting is, is when they began to investigate it a little bit, that when the group bought tickets, they bought round-trip tickets. I mean, that doesn't make sense, does it? If you really believe that the rapture was going to happen during the Feast of Trumpets and you're in Jerusalem, why do you feel like you need to come back unless you, it's a scam? We saw a few years ago, you know, Harold Camping that got a lot of press because he came up with the date predicting the rapture of the church and it didn't happen. Then he said, well, oh, sorry, I miscalculated. He gave another date and it didn't happen. We know that there are those who said, well, you can't take 1948. you got to take 1967 when, you know, the Israeli troops took over Jerusalem. And you had 40 years. That comes to 2007. So then seven years before that is the rapture of the church. And so they say the rapture was going to happen in the year 2000. And that makes sense because we bring in the six-in-one theory. Six days the Lord worked Seventh day, he rested 6,000 years of mankind, 4,000 years of the Old Testament, 2,000 years of the church. And then now the year 2000 is the millennium reign, a time of rest. So you have these people that come up with all of these dates and ignoring what Jesus specifically said. that I come when you're least expected? No one knows the day or the hour. He meant what he said and he said what he meant. So there are those that, you know, Christians that get very weary of the teachings concerning the rapture or the return of the Lord. They don't want to hear about it. Pastors don't want to teach about it because, you know, of of those who have come along and done things like that, making predictions and people who think we're a bunch of kooks and weirdos because we believe in the coming of the Lord. It's kind of like the gifts of the spirit that those who abuse or there's weirdness concerning the gifts of the Spirit, Christians look at that and they say, well, we're going to ignore it completely. And we don't want to do that. Because it's such a marvelous promise that Jesus has given to us that when you begin to see these things come to pass, look up, lift up your heads and rejoice because your redemption draws near. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my words are not going to pass away. So you're thinking, what does it mean here, that verse, this generation? It could be the generation that sees the manifestation of these signs culminating in the fullness of the book of Revelation. It could be simply that. Another suggestion is this, this generation, this genos in the Greek, translated race. It might be in your margins written there as race. Jesus saying that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed Not one stone's going to be left upon another. You're going to be scattered throughout all the nations, and you're going to go through all those years of persecution. And they would go through the Holocaust of World War II and then brought back into the land, even as the prophets of old predicted would happen. Absolute miracle. They come back into the land, the budding of the fig tree in 1948. But when you come into the land that this generation, this genos, this This race here, the Jewish people are not leaving and they're not passing away. Even as Amos said, once they come back in the land, they're not going to be plucked out. And God's going to have a plan for them, going to restore them when he comes back. And so it will not pass away till I return and restore the nation of Israel. I think that simply that's what Jesus is saying. And as we look at this, for you and I, the church, the Lord has this very special promise called the blessed hope. Listen. Here's the thing. That John in his epistle would write this. That when we see him, we shall be like him. And he who has this hope purifies himself. In other words, when we see the Lord, he who has this hope, and that word hope in the New Testament is not oh, I hope it happens, like we use the word, is certain expectation, It's certainty, it's going to happen. And that's why the rapture is called the blessed hope. It's going to happen. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my words are not going to pass away. And Jesus says, you keep your eyes on me. You watch. It's a commandment. You be ready. You be sober. You be vigilant. Don't go to sleep. And don't be weighed down with worldliness, lest that day come upon you unexpectedly. But what you and I are to do is to know that he has a wonderful future. You know, tomorrow isn't promised to any of us anyway. You know, it isn't. Keep your eyes on the Lord. And if you live every single day with maybe perhaps the Lord, that everything's culminating to where the Lord's going to come back, it's not continuing just as it is. And the Lord is going to return as he promised. Over 100 prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ in great detail concerning the birth and ministry and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ fulfilled to the letter. Over 200 prophecies concerning his second coming. Now, if those prophecies were fulfilled to the letter, every dot and tittle of his first coming, can we have confidence that it's going to be fulfilled in the second coming? Yes, we can. And it's a great evangelistic tool, even when you have discussions with family and those at work that they see the craziness that's going on around the world, that you can say, Hey, there's hope, and the Lord's coming back, and this world is not where it's at, and there is a blessed hope, and you can be a part of that as you give your life to Jesus Christ and to be watching. And to know that he who has this hope purifies himself. Because if you're living in the expectancy of the return of the Lord, even as John says, as a purifying effect on your heart and on your life, you're not going to be hanging out at the bars and partying and full of carnality. I want to be found as a faithful servant, which means you keep serving and occupied till I come is what Jesus said. We have the marvelous privilege in this generation, this generation that we're living in, that's closer to the return of the Lord, obviously, than any other generation of the church. Be a light. And pay attention. And lift up your head. Because our redemption draws near. And give that message of hope to others, the blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Paul would write to Titus. Father, we thank you. For this encouragement, Lord, this truth given to us, heaven and earth have passed away, but not your words, it will be fulfilled and you are coming back. And Lord, I thank you that we can just stand on that promise, that we can lift up our heads as we begin to see these things come to pass, the budding of the fig tree, the major sign that we're in the last days the budding of the other trees, these things, the signs that are happening in more frequency and intensity that's all leading somewhere and that is the return of the Lord. You promised you would come back to receive us to yourself and we look forward to that. We thank you for the promise of heaven because we don't know the day or the hour but to live every day for you, Lord, not to grow to sleep and grow lethargic and be weighed down with a dullness of heart, but to be serving and growing because we have such a marvelous promise given to us.